You'll either move on past it, or you don't, or you learn to live with it, or you don't. And that's just how it is. It comes back, get funky, and then you work your way out of it, and then life is good again. But you know what's coming. It's going to come back. It's never gone. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process, this process of growth and change and transformation that we're all a part of, and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way, like holds on a rock face that lead us forward and give us clues to why it's so important we get there. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Today we meet Bob Diggs Brown, a U.S. Army veteran who served his country for 34 years, first as an enlistee and later as an officer in the Army Special Forces. Not only did Diggs fight in Afghanistan, but he voluntarily participated in rebuilding, supplying, and teaching at a local village school. He worked to procure supplies and assisted in rebuilding what will become one of the first girls' schools in the region. In spite of his post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury, Diggs has been the recipient of several awards in recognition of his service, including Community Hero from the Safeco Insurance Company, Citizen of the Year by the Fort Collins Board of Realtors, and the Veteran of the Year of the State of Colorado by the Daughters of the American Revolution. Welcome to our No Barriers podcast. We're really excited to have Diggs Brown on our show today. Uh, Before we get started with Diggs, Eric, you just uh, recently had a pretty amazing experience that I would love the listeners to learn a little bit about. Can you share with us? We had a lady, uh, Narissa Cannon, who came to one of our No Barriers events. She's in a wheelchair, and she was uh, really inspired by this hike that we did. And she said, I want to do something harder. I really like the teamwork that happens here. So she wanted to climb one of our Colorado 14,000-foot peaks. And uh, Jeff, one of our hosts, is here. And what, what happened? Well, I think 21 people showed up to help this woman achieve her dream. And, and, and throughout that whole day, I think everybody realized what a privilege it was because we all got to you know, step up at some point and help hoist your chair up over rocks and terrain. And at one point she got put on the back of, of this, this young stud and carried all the way to the summit of, you know, 14,000 foot peak. And then we all worked together to bring her back down. And there was, you know, it was just, it was the, the full, uh, you know, cross section of what a no barriers event should look like. It was, it was hard. It was fun. It was fulfilling. It was emotional. Uh, and it was satisfying. On so and it was levels. a breakthrough for her too, because, uh, you know, she wasn't really before that in this understanding of, Hey, I can receive help from a great team of people who want to be there and really want to have purpose in their lives. So 
it not only did she benefit, I think the whole team summit, the whole team summiting also benefited from this amazing experience. So yeah, we're all on a high right now. And even Jeff uh, at 50 years old carried Narissa ways down the trail. All of that statement was right except for me being 50. Yes. Almost 50. <laughs> Not as close as you. Well, and, and today on our show, we've got someone who's also had some great breakthroughs in the mountains. Jeff, you want to introduce uh, our listeners to uh, our guest today? One of my most favorite people on the planet. And anybody who comes in contact with Diggs Brown um, generally feels about the same. So, um, you know, it's, it, this is a privilege for all of us uh, to have Diggs with us today. Um, I'm not going to give you the full bio. I want Diggs to do so. But, um, you know, Diggs has been a part of our family for a long time, and we've shared a lot of experiences together. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Diggs. Thrilled to death to be here. Thank you so much. It's always great to see these smiling faces of no barriers. I mean, you guys rock my world. You're the best. You got an impressive career, 34 years in the military, and uh, you were an enlisted man and you were an officer, special forces. It's really, it's really cool. To- well, I've, I've done a number of things. That's my military career. A lot of that is reserve and National Guard duty. I did do active duty, of course. But uh, I've been a, a film actor. I've been a financial advisor. That's what I was doing when 9-11 occurred. And uh, 9-11 sort of just tanked my career because I kept getting deployed to go overseas. But a uh, very uh, lot of different interests and things. But my big interest right now is to help our veterans have come home and make sure they they feel comfortable when they're home and they have somebody they can turn to, which I, I do consider this organization no barriers. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, you came to us at a time when you were looking for that kind of transition, some transition assistance. You're going through some things and talk a bit about how the program uh, assisted you. I was at a point in my life, I was really lost. Because you, you come back from a, a war and you've seen some things and done some things and it's not really – it takes a while to digest and sometimes you don't digest it at all. And I was at a low – I was at a very low point in my life and uh, I, I came in and, and interviewed with No Barriers and it was kind of iffy because I was the old guy. You know, what's your handicap? Well, I'm 56. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have a traumatic brain injury and some – uh, bodily injuries from a vehicle accident over there. And uh, anyway, I was selected to to go on the trip and on the mission. And it, what a life-changing experience. And a lot of that, you know, it has to do with the leadership of the organization. And, and you guys sitting at this table, you you understand that you are that leadership. But I mean, like Jeff and uh, Charlie, those two guys really busted their humps to make sure that every veteran on this trip, on this mission, had a success we started, this was a 2014 mission to try to uh, climb Mount Whitney. And, you know, right here in Golden is where we all met up, 14 veterans and Charlie and Jeff. And we met downtown at one of the hotels. Wells Fargo was our sponsor at the point. They were there, treat us to dinner. Uh, next morning we'd get up, we'd go get gear, which was just great because none of us really had anything. And then we started climbing. I mean, that day we went up to uh, St. Mary's Glacier, or it was... It is St. Mary's, right? Yeah. I mean, stayed the night on the glacier, got the morning and and trekked all the way top and back in deep snow. And for a lot of people on this trip, a lot of the veterans, this is their first time to ever do anything like that. I mean, for me too. And it really makes you evaluate who you are inside and what your strengths are and what your weakness. 
And so we, we, that was our first go. And then the next thing you know, you're here at Rolls September 2014, and we're off to climb the tallest mountain in the lower 48, Mount Whitney out in California. And it's a life-changing experience because you get these people. Part of the adventure is you're not just climbing. At night, you sit around the campfire, and, and you try to open up and get the veterans who are on this trip with you on this mission, on this trip, whatever you want to call it, to open up also. And the first time you guys sit down and try to talk, uh, very few people will say anything. You know, everybody's pretty anxious about the entire situation. They don't know what to say. So you get one person speaking, and as the days go by, more and more speak. And the thing that I realized that, well, I thought my situation was awful. There were 11 other veterans around that campfire who were just having an awful time with their lives. In fact, three of them confided in me that they had contemplated suicide within the past month. And I tell you what, I know for sure one individual on that trip would have committed suicide had it not been for no barriers and the, the leadership and the experience with everybody together able for the first time for some of us to sit down and talk about our situation and what the issues were that we were dealing with. And on this trip, you look at the people with TBIs, which almost, you know, traumatic brain injury, which almost everybody has. Post-traumatic stress, everybody's got that. Then you have the amputees and and uh, people who have injuries that are visible. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. I mean, it's a life-changing experience. It's a challenge. On our Whitney climb, we've, I think we walked 50 miles through down the John Muir Trail before we summited the mountain at Five o'clock in the morning, got there just in time to to pull out the flag and have the sun come up over the eastern United States, the tallest point. And what was the date that we stood on top of that mountain? September 11th. It was something. Yeah. It was something. And, and I had carried with me an uh, American flag that had flown over my bank where I was working on September 11th. And on September 11th, I pulled that flag down, folded it up, and just put it away. You know, someday this this flag's going to mean something special. Well, I carried that flag all the way to the top of Mount Whitney, and as the sun came up, we unfolded it, and everybody held it, and let the sun shine through the flag, and what a dry eye in the house. What a great experience. And then then you're done. You get off the mountain, and then you have time to reflect for a couple days with the rest of the crew, then everybody goes their separate way. But when they do go their separate way, you still maintain contact with them. You still talk to them. You see them on Facebook. You go on another adventure, and there they are. You, you make outstanding friendships. You get a new perspective on your life. And, and you learn that no matter how bad you feel your situation is, it really isn't. It's, there's nothing you can't overcome. Now, Jeff, you've been a part of some of these adventures, as have you, Eric, uh, what did you kind of? What did you kind of tease out of that, Jeff? When you listen to Diggs retell that story, well, you know, as, as I said from the outset, Diggs is pretty special, and that trip was <clears throat> was a very special trip, I think, for a lot of people. And I think it had, it sort of summarized um, sort of how we were talking about Narissa's experience. It summarized everything that's no barriers. It was hard. It was physically hard. It was emotionally hard, but it was so satisfying for us. For me, you know, as an outsider, basically, from not knowing you, not knowing these other 11 veterans that we spent all this time with, not knowing the backstories and not knowing the struggle and, and the pain um, that had, you know, sort of created calluses on you over the years, 
then to watch you go through this period of sort of peeling that away over the course of all those experiences together. And then it sort of crescendoed, you know, on that summit as these trips are supposed to, right? And, you know, I just, it was, it was an absolute honor to, to sort of watch that, that, uh, that journey for, for all of you and you in particular, you know, there's certain people you always feel a stronger affinity for. And I, I definitely have felt that way for you since, since day one. And I think that explains why we're, we uh, continue to hold hands and walk down the trail together, you know? <laughs> You're not supposed to be telling anybody yeah. that. <laughs> so, Jeff, you mentioned backstory. I mean, Diggs, I understand you, when you were in the Army, you trained Afghan National Army, and you uh, got even a chance to build schools. Tell us about that. Yeah, the, you know, we went in when the war first started. Uh, in fact, uh, we were the second Special Forces group into Afghanistan. So this was uh, 2002, let's see, I think May. And our mission, everybody thinks Green Berets, oh, it's the train killers and all this stuff. And that's part of it. But the main mission of Special Forces is to be a force multiplier, and that is to go in and train their military how to fight their own war. So that's what you're seeing in Afghanistan and Iraq, a force multiplier. So a 12-man Special Forces team can train a 700-man battalion in about 10 weeks and get them ready to fight. And that was our mission. But one of the things that came up while I was there was, uh, you know, we're on a base of about 250 people. It's about 100 Special Forces guys, the rest are security and support people. But we had a chaplain with us, Chaplain Andy, and Chaplain Andy came to me one day. He goes, Diggs, you know, there's a school down the street in this village called Polycharki, and, and the Taliban has destroyed it, and we would really, uh, I would really like for you to come with me and be a part of this, let's rebuild the school. Well, chaplain, I'm kind of busy at the moment. I'm fighting a war here. Oh, no, I need for you to go, please. So I went and talked to the battalion commander, and he said, yeah, sure, go ahead, but you only do it on your day off, which was Wednesdays for me. So every Wednesday, the chaplain would go down to Polycharki and uh, help them run the school. Now, you got to understand, when Taliban came in to power, they destroyed all the schools. All that was left here was a... a cement frame building, no windows, no electricity, no furniture, no books, nothing. And uh, at first, the village elders were very leery. I mean, we had to negotiate with them to come in and build this school. And their fear was that, and they, they vocalized this, they said, if you start the school and you leave like the Russians did, the Taliban will come in and wipe out our village. No, no, no gentlemen, we are, we're Americans, we're here for the duration, we'll take care of you. So they allowed us to come in every Wednesday, and the chaplain and I would teach six hours, six classes of English. And it was very interesting because these young boys, or no girls, the young boys were literally walking barefoot to get to school miles with no school supplies, nothing. And uh, this went on for several weeks. And one of the things I didn't notice one day was there, there was this young uh, young Afghani gal. Her name was Farista, and Farista was 11. And she'd be staring in through the windows and trying to listen to the class. You know, no glass in windows. What else, is, what else is there to stop her? Nothing. Except for the village elders who didn't want the girls educated because that's the way they are. So the chaplain and I went to the village elders after watching her for about three weeks, trying to listen on the class. And we said, you know what? Girls need to go to school. Oh, no, girls can't go to school. Girls cannot go to school. No, they need to. So we went back and forth with these guys for a couple weeks. And finally, 
they thought they had us. They really did. They go, okay, girls could go to school. However, you men cannot teach them. There must be women. And so they didn't realize that on our base, part of our military police contingent were females. So next Wednesday, we showed up with some female uh, MPs and the girls started school. And that was one of the first schools, if not the first school, to allow girls in after the fall of Taliban. So when I look at my accomplishments in life, to me, that is the big one. You know, it's it's trying to do something for somebody else with your life and be being willing to sacrifice on your on your own behalf to to do that. And the chaplain did that. Um, I did that. We had a fifty thousand dollar reward on our heads that the Taliban wanted us dead for daring to teach school. So there are a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts beyond just fighting war. It's hearts and minds. And if you don't win the hearts and minds of the people that you're fighting for or with, you're, you're wasting your time. You've got to get them to believe in you as you believe in them. I'm curious, um, just because we know you and we know who you are, but you know, you just really disclosed that on your day off, your one day off a week, you went down and sort of reestablished a school. You had one day off in between fighting a war. So you clearly have like a servant, you have a servant heart. So I'm curious, what led you to enlist into the military? And was that something that you knew from early on or were you, where did that come from? Where did it originate in your, in your soul? Well, my, my father had been in the military. He was Major Bob Diggs Brown Sr. in the Persian Gulf during the Second World War. And of course, my uncle, I mean, everybody that generation served in the military. But the, here's the backside of this whole story. And that is my dad took me to see John Wayne, the Green Berets, when I was 10. Done. <laughs> I was done. I walked out of the air, looked at, up at dad, said, I'm going to do that. So in 1979, with one semester left in college, I went and joined the military, joined the Green Berets, and uh, served my time, came back, finished school. And what I really liked about being in Special Forces was working with the indigenous people and helping them. I mean, it's, sure, there's the action adventure, high altitude free fall, you know, sneaking around through the jungle, whatever you want. It's, it's there. I, in fact, I knocked off most of my bucket list with the military, but... Uh, it's also being able to uh, work with the people. I was on 1987, I was in El Salvador and Honduras and uh, doing some operations down there. And one of the things that we did was go to the village next to us and uh, bring medical help in for the kids. I mean, they have no medical down there. But the funny part, I don't know if this is funny, may grow some people out, but down there, they uh, suck on sugar cane. So you can imagine what these people's teeth look like. So out of the 300 soldiers that we were training, I got to pull teeth for three days. Mm-hmm. I bet you I pulled 100 teeth, and it was like the worst thing ever. <laughs> Just take but, your Leatherman and stick it in there and rip it out. Well, basically pliers and a lever and yeah. and loosen up and give a couple of yanks, and out it comes. But uh, we we actually flew in a dentist from Fort Bragg, he and his assistant. They had the nice dental chair. And, and uh, Colin, who was my medic at that point in time, he and I both had our – Soldiers sitting on buckets, spitting into a bucket, and I guess I'm going too far with this. <laughs> but I mean, it's the same thing, though. You're going in, and you're helping the people, and that's I. I try to help people as I can. I, I my vision of the world is if we all just took a breath and took a moment to try to help other people, 
what a wonderful, wonderful place it would be. So you do this positive thing, you know, you sign up to serve your country and you're working with indigenous people, you're building schools, you're doing really positive stuff. Then you come home and understand you wind up with what you call a moral injury. So tell us about that. What is a moral injury? Oh, that's, well, it's hard to define unless you're really experiencing it because it's, uh, you know, things happen in war and it's not always Hollywood. I mean, in Hollywood, people die and they just die and and uh, you don't see the backside to that story. You don't see the pain inflicted on people when they're injured or dying or whatever the case may be. And uh, we had an, an we had an accident with uh, some of the kids. Actually, some of the kids of my school, and they were they were just at the wrong place at the wrong time, and they were told not to be there, and they show up anyway, and it. It was very, very bad. And I've, I don't know why, but I blame myself for it. And there's nothing that could have been done. But you just, it's something you just carry with you. And you'll, I'll have it the rest of my life. And you live with it. And sometimes it, it goes to the back of your mind. And then sometimes it comes like a locomotive to the front. And, you know, I'm not the only person going through this. And that's why, you know, I believe in the mission of this organization and what you're doing for these veterans. Uh, my life would have been totally different had I not met you guys, not been a part of this organization. You've, you've literally saved my life, literally. Well, I think when a person like you puts themselves out in such a way, you, 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 you're vulnerable, you become really vulnerable. And, and, you know, because of that servant heart that you have, you put yourself out there and this, this terribly tragic thing happened and it hurt you even more, I'm sure. And, you know, I've, I've heard you tell that story and, uh, you know, it, it still appears very, very fresh. Um, like it's, it's still right there in the front of your mind and exists. Have you been able to, over the years, especially in the past five, six, seven, eight years now, been able to relate with this younger generation of recently discharged veterans that come out because of your experience, for instance, this story you tell, are you able to sort of share that story with your fellow veterans? And is there a sort of catharsis that comes with that when you share it with them? Yes, to all the above. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, uh, you know, I guess it was two years ago we had a Grand Canyon rafting trip with about a dozen veterans also. And I was the the veteran guide portion of the trip, you know, the, the old guy who'd done this stuff before. And as I was mentioning earlier, we'd sit around the campfire at night, try to get people to speak and open up. And, you know, that was my role. And so I, I told my story right off the get-go the first night. And I think people weren't expecting it. But afterwards, some of came and said, I have something very similar to that. I said, well, you need to talk about it, and you need to talk to talk about everybody here and not hold it in. So gradually, you know, by night four of a nine-night travel, uh, everybody was pretty much opening up, and th there'd be so many commonalities. I mean, everybody's experience is different, but the if you want to call it the punchline, is always the same. And you'll either move on past it, or you don't, or you learn to live with it, or you don't. And I, I believe that I'm living with what what happened. You know, some days not so good and some days 
it's not like it used to be. It used to be every day. Every day I'd think about this. Every night I'd wake up with nightmares, just sweating the bed out. And, you know, it wasn't comfortable at all. It's it's very rare now, but every once in a while I get in a funk, and that's just how it is. It comes back, you get funky, and then you work your way out of it, and then life is good again. But you know what's coming. It's mm. going to come back. It's never gone. This is helpful because I think we have so many people who listen who have had physical injuries or emotional trauma, you know, they've had, they lost really important people in their lives. And like, so you talk about inner peace and you talk about mental health and stuff. Do you, do you think you, like, what does that process look like? Do you think you, you heal totally or do you just learn to process all that's happened in your life? Well, I don't, I don't believe you, you heal totally. I mean, there is some healing that goes on with it, but this, uh, this will remain, at least in my case, with me forever. But it's you. When you recognize it's coming on, you know you can start doing the things that you need to do to, you know, sort of tuck it away back in the corner where it belongs. I, I like to go on trips. Uh, this trip to Nepal that I just took with Jeff was just a real mind clearing event for me. It, it helped a lot. I did. I walked the Camino. You know, the five hundred miles to the Camino two years ago, and that's a chance you're walking 500 miles with nobody, you have a chance to think about everything in your life and start evaluating it and figure out what box am I going to put this this memory in and where am I going to put that mm. box? I mean, that's kind of layman's terms, but that's, I'm a layman. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, that's, I, I, I think you can I overcome that. anything, but there are some things that just, you may overcome it, but it's always there and it's always going to be a reminder that you did have a past of some sort. I think it's really important for people to understand that, that from your perspective, you know, it's, it's about that knowing that those things come on and that you have to deal with them and you have to get yourself out of that. There's strategies to get yourself out of that. And not to compare any of my story to yours, but I mean, my daughter went off to college uh, a couple of weeks ago and I just went into this funk and my wife knew uh, my personality. And so she said, let's go take a walk and up in the mountains and let's go swimming in this beautiful mountain lake that we have. And man, feeling that beautiful lake and that sunshine and walking on this beautiful dirt trail, I, I, I pulled myself out of it. And yeah, so I, I'm relating to, I think a lot of people can relate to this, these strategies that we use, right? To, just to work our way out of these, uh, these depths that we can fall into. Absolutely. And everybody, everybody is different and everybody's going to have to figure out their own method to uh, put that thought away in the box or whatever, uh, escape that that dread. And I think, again, going back to no barriers, you guys offer that. You offer a chance for people to evaluate who they are, where they are in their lives, and you give them different options. And whatever they take away from no barriers is going to be a huge help in their future. Uh, you guys are doing doing God's work, absolutely. And Diggs, I love the analogy you gave to a locomotive because I, I've experienced that personally in my life. I've seen a lot of people at No Bears. You've, you, you put it away a while and then you hear that locomotive coming and sometimes it can roll over you again. It keeps coming. And Eric, and you have talked about one methodology that works for you all, which is that idea of get out somewhere beautiful, go on a big journey, recenter, refocus. Um, and I think that's one way to kind of get through that locomotive coming. That whole locomotive metaphor, just really like thinking about that, 
locomotives are loud and sometimes they give you a little warning right before they show up, right? Just, and they're barreling through. And boy, if you've got the wherewithal to understand what it sounds like when that thing's coming your way and barreling down the track, that's when the rope team really comes in like, hey, it's, right? Things are, it's, about to, it's about to catch up to me and I need you now, right? So I think, you know, what I've seen with you over the years is, you know, you're, you, you are into developing relationships and rope teams. Um, and you've seen the value and you cherish those relationships that come from these shared experiences, right? I mean, it's, I mean, you can probably relate to it a lot with your military experience, right? It's a similar sort of thing. Yeah, well, in Special Forces, you operate on a 12-man team, and so that's what I'm used to. I was very fortunate in my 34 years in the military, uh, about 29 of those, I was on a team, first as an enlisted man, then as a commander. And then you always get transferred to the general staff, and it just goes downhill from there. <laughs> but, you know, it's all team building. You're working with people. You're depending on people. Yes, why you talk to if you need to talk to them. And that person on the rope in front of you is there when you need them. If you're falling, they're there to hold you up. And same thing for the person behind you. You're there to hold them up also. Here in the uh, studio, the listeners may hear uh, another member of your rope team a little bit shaken here and there. Uh, and, and many of us go around you know, our communities and see uh, folks with service dogs. Can you tell us a little bit about the role that your dog plays in your life? Yeah, he's hilarious. He's been groaning and shaking and flapping his ears. <laughs> I thought that right was your stomach, Eric. Yeah, no, I just everyone, that is not my <laughs> stomach, for the record. <laughs> well, that, that is Arthur Barker Black. Arthur is an English lab, uh, actually played a big part in getting me out of the funk, uh, and that was, I, I had Arthur before I ran into you guys. But at that point in my life, I was really in the crapper. And, uh, you know, you go to the VA and you say, I'm having these kind of issues. They go, well, here, take all these drugs and come back in three months. So you take all those drugs and you're all fried. Then you come back in three months and that doctor is gone. And the new doctor says, no, no, take these, take these. So uh, I wasn't having much luck with the opioids or whatever they were giving you. So I got hold of this organization called Puppies Behind Bars. And what they do is they train service dogs in five penitentiaries in New York. Now, that people go, oh, I've heard of a program like that down in Canyon City. Well, it's not the same thing. These people get these dogs when they're eight weeks old, and they train them for two years. So the service dogs that come out have 95 commands. They're all trained to work with quadriplegics. I mean, he can dial 911 on the phone. Don't. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. He can do laundry, although he doesn't fold or separate colors or iron, but he can put in the machines. I mean, he can do so many things. And uh, anyway, Does I... Does he I, give I, back rubs too? I mean, he's <laughs> like... like very... we, have, we haven't worked that one yeah, yet. Yeah, it's next sure. level. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I got the dog through the program. You, you graduate, you take your dog home, and once a year they come out and check on the welfare of the dog. He's still their dog till he's eight. And they can take it back anytime. If your dog's obese, you're not using him, he's neglected, they'll take it back. And you look at Arthur, you go, that dog's just pampered. He's <laughs> <laughs> a loved animal. Oh, yeah, he is. He's my baby. Uh, good dog, and he'll be turning eight on Christmas Day. So it, when he turns eight, what they generally do is they bring you a new dog because the labs are 10-year dogs, and they don't want your dog dying on you, and then you're stuck without a dog. I'm so you'd be you'd have two dogs or you'd give 
in this case, I'd give Arthur back to the penitentiary, which mm. I have no intention of doing. Mm, I don't see that happening. No, no. So he's got I, a Facebook page. <laughs> he does. Yeah, you ain't giving him back to anybody. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, with Arthur, I'm I'm not going to take the new dog. I'm just keep him and and retire him. And you know, he still serves me as what his purpose is. You know, so we're good. And uh, when he gets to a point where he can't fly in the planes anymore, then we'll get a uh, camper van and travel America and, and see that. But right now he flies with me everywhere, rides at your feet in the aircraft and uh, just a very special dog and and uh, my my best friend. <laughs> so it sounds like a ringing endorsement for a service dog under yeah, the right I, circumstances. I would put that out for any rocker, Afghani, any veteran really, but this organization is Puppies Behind Bars. You can look them up on the internet. Puppies are the very best things, creatures on the planet, and then they turn into the number two best thing on the planet, which are dogs. Yeah, Yeah. that's so true. Well, we focused uh, most of our conversation so far, Diggs, on the past. Uh, As you know from being through our program, we help folks think about what they can take from the past and move to the future with it. But um, talk a little bit about what's going on now, what you're excited about in your current life, what you have in the present, what you're looking forward to um, as you are moving forward through life. And also add in there your the, your, your hairstyle and your, your <laughs> beard, your grooming habits, just so the <laughs> listeners who don't know you can understand the full picture. Thank you. The okay. world appreciates that. <laughs> uh, picture in your mind, Buffalo Bill Cody. That's it. There you go. All right. So this was one of the deals after I retired from the military and I walked that Camino and I was thinking to myself, I mean, I'm in the middle of nowhere in Spain for nine hours walking through a wheat field thinking my entire life in the military, I had to keep my hair short. I had to wear a uniform. In my civilian job, I had to keep my hair short, wear a three-piece suit, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to do it anymore. So two years ago, I quit cutting my hair. Now, I've, I've cut four inches off of it because it's getting kind of crazy long, but I literally look like Buffalo Bill Cody. Meets Greg Allman. Mm-hmm. I'm a rambling man. So uh, so once a year, I, I travel to France and I teach American history to French students as Buffalo Bill Cody. The other thing I'm doing is uh, I'm back into acting. About 30 years ago, I lived in Dallas. When I came back from my, my mission in Central America, you know, that tanked my, my stock brokerage career. So I decided to go to school and get a film degree and to pay my way through school. I was acting. I was actually on the TV show Dallas for three seasons a number of other uh, small productions like that. And uh, Did you shoot JR? No, but I tried to kill Bobby Ewing three mm. times. I couldn't do it. I was mm. the bad mercenary, the bad shot mercenary. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so right now I'm, I'm acting again. I have an agent in Denver and one in Albuquerque. It's a lot of fun. Thank God I don't have to rely on this for income because it's few and far between, but it's just, it's fun. It's a hobby. And... Uh, you know, last week, we, or a couple weeks ago, we actually had a Red Bull commercial shot out at Twin Lakes. So when people see this Red Bull commercial with a Formula One car racing down the mountain and whipping into the gas station, I'm the gas station attendant there dressing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's there's always something going on, and life is just what you make it. And I'm looking forward to my next adventure with Jeff which I don't know what we're doing next. We'll but figure something out. I know, yeah. and it's always a good one. Yeah. You're, a rena- you're a renaissance man. Well, yeah. 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 You have many careers. You've had like three careers, four careers. Five, six, seven, Five eight. Five careers. I, I don't want to go down the list, but I've done a lot. You're good at all of them, too. 
well, jack of all trades, master of none, they <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that's what's going on right now. Uh, just I have a wonderful gal that I'm dating, and that, that helps a lot too because you, you have to understand if you're dating a veteran and who's had some issues, you better understand that sometimes things just don't go the way that they're supposed to go. And you, you, you learn to live with it or you don't. We'll see. Well, Diggs, it's been a great pleasure having you on our show. It's always wonderful to see you, and we appreciate sort of the raw honesty that you brought to the, the table. I think there's something in what you share today that we can all learn from. So uh, it's a real honor to have you as a member of our community, and thank you for being here. Thank you all for having me. You guys, you're changing so many lives. You really are. Thank you. Thank you, Diggs. Love you, buddy. Well, team, uh, that was pretty powerful. Uh, Eric, Jeff, you want to share a little bit about what stood out for for you in the conversation? I liked uh, what Diggs was saying about maybe you never heal. You just uh, figure out some strategies to be aware of yourself, your inner self, and know when it's happening, and then be able to uh, find that rope team that can help pull you out of it or some strategies to pull you out of it. And, uh, and, and it's not necessarily about ever being quote-unquote cured. I think that's really important for a lot of folks. Well, what I mean, I've known Diggs for a while now, so I've thought about him a lot. And I, I just, uh, it, he reinforces this idea of when you put yourself all the way out there, you make yourself the most vulnerable. And I think that there's certain people who are wired like that, and Diggs is one of those people. And you can, you can listen to him talk and realize that, you know, he's one who doesn't shy away from full commitment and, you know, and his, his life has, you know, has punched him around from time to time, but you can hear that his spirit is still strong. And I think that's an affirmation of, you know, of, of what his true character is and who we can all aspire to be. About you, Dave. Yeah, what about you, Dave? Yeah, for me, I think that analogy of the, the locomotive really resonated with me and how do you get used to the, the feelings that are coming upon you when that thing that you hurts is coming back and how are you prepared for it? Because we work with so many folks who the things don't ever go away forever. But if you could get used to the way it feels and that something is coming, you can reach out to your rope team for support. Mm -hmm. You can use the tools that you have and know that that wave is about to hit you again. And and getting used to hearing that coming, I think is is a a very important skill for folks who are facing. It takes a while to do that too. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and as Diggs, I think, said very honestly, sometimes it goes well and it, it doesn't always, even after you've learned those things. You know, it's not uh, like you learn it once and that means you got it. So, yeah, well, another great show. Thank you, Jeff. Thank yeah, you, Eric. Amazing. Um, if you're out there listening and wondering what you could do to help support No Barriers, we ask you to please uh, like this podcast and share it with others. That's one of the best things you can do. Uh, If you're interested in being a part of our programs uh, you've heard about today, you can check us out at nobarriersusa.org. We do have uh, in-person experiences like what Diggs was talking about, where we take people on these great adventures. Uh, We're also launching virtual experiences where you can take uh, some courses with us that help you learn some of these skills, uh, but you don't have to go on a big adventure. So uh, hope you all enjoyed the show today and, and just remember that what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. No barriers. I know. Thanks to all of you for listening to our podcast. 
We know that you have a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and so we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, which is called Guidance. Production team behind this podcast includes producers Diedrich Jonk and Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Jesse Singer and Tyler Kotman, graphics by Sam Davis, and marketing support by Laura Baldwin and Jamie Donnelly. Thanks to all you amazing people for the great work you do. And soon they will be fighting.